A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. So geheist waren die Brüder in Amerika. Von Kaufen schaffen es es gibt Out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little. It is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geber. with Jewish History Soundbites, and uh, this episode about the life and legacy of Reb Chaim Brisker has been generously sponsored by Mordechai Hartman in honor of Yehuda Geber, Davi Safir, and the awesome crew on the base medrash of Lawrence Poland trip 2022. So that's uh, really nice. I actually just finished uh, that trip recently, and it was a wonderful trip uh, with, uh, you know, across Poland, great, uh, great uh, energy and, and um, ruach and history, and it was really, really exciting. I'd then uh, continued with a, um, a family from Lakewood. So there's a lot of great trips, great groups going on. In fact, with this Lawrence Shul, we we had we were there on the first time in two years that I've been back to Lezhensk for the yard site of the Rebbe of Meilich and the first Adar and Chafal uh, of Adar. Always found it funny to contrast. There's uh, Rabbi Yitzhak Elchanan Specter, the great Kovner of, also has his yard site on Chafal of Adar. And you go to if you if you ever happen to be in Kovna, in Lithuania on Chafal Avadar, you're not going to find too many people by Rebitzel uh grave site, and not a lot of food either, or music, or anything else exciting. But you go to the Rebbe of Meilach, the Naimali Melech in Lezhensk on Chafal Avadar. There's lots going on, and it's great to be back there. Lots of good food, and uh, and uh, good davening, and it's very exciting. Either way, um, moving on, before I get to Reb Chaim Brisker, so of course, uh, unfortunately, uh, our brethren uh, in Ukraine, the Jewish communities, the Jews and Jewish communities in Ukraine, along with, along with the general Ukrainian population, is facing a challenging time. So um, the many, many Jews, close, I think there's close to 100,000 Jews in Ukraine these days, of uh, the Jewish communities of Ukraine and every individual uh, Jew in Ukraine are in the hearts and prayers of all of us uh, at here at Jewish History Soundbites uh, during this very challenging time. I just saw in the news, actually, it seems that even the dead Jews in Ukraine aren't safe now. Uh, I saw that a, one of the military targets uh, is, happens to be located near the Babi Yar mass grave in Kiev, where the uh, Holocaust victims um, uh, of Jewish Jews of Kiev were killed during during the Holocaust. Uh, so th- this t- 
target, this nearby target, became the victim of a missile strike. So part of the Babi Yar memorial uh, was uh, was in the collateral damage. So as if those Holocaust victims haven't suffered enough, so now they're part of an, another uh, another damaging uh, chapter. Um, there's a lot of uh, interesting historical significance of this war, as well as the danger facing uh, Ukrainian Jew- Jewry at this time, and the role in Jewish history of the Ukrainian Jewish community. It's very interesting. In fact, it brought brought to mind uh, it was the, the greatest uh, um, war journalist in in the Soviet Union during the war was a Jew, actually, um, Vasily Grossman. Fascinating. Um, person and his story and the books he wrote and the journalism and he was the great and maybe maybe of World War Two but for sure on the Eastern Front he was there at Stalingrad he was there followed the Red Army through its entire offensive uh, sweeping through Eastern Europe liberating and he was there at the Battle of Berlin he was there at the liberation of Treblinka the liberation of Auschwitz the liberation of everywhere he a very very interesting story in him you know on his in his own merits so either way. One of the articles he wrote, he himself was this Soviet, you know, uh, somewhat assimilated Jew uh, living in Moscow, but his origins were in Berdichev in Ukraine, in the Pale of Settlement, uh, where his family was from. And of course, uh, they were wiped out. Uh, whoever was there was wiped out during the Holocaust. And Vasily Grossman is going with the victorious Red Army at the end of the war, and he's in Ukraine when it's being liberated, and he discovers that there's basically no Jews left in Ukraine. And he writes this uh, powerful uh, article in the Soviet press, and you you see it. I've seen translations, obviously. I don't read Russian, but uh, you see the 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 personal side of uh, of this Soviet journalist come out in this um, article, which is uh, titled "There Are No Jews Left in Ukraine," and here he's going through which one had been the heartland of Jewish settlement in. In Ukraine for centuries, uh, and, and he himself had come from Bardichev, one of those historic cities which always had such a great Jewish population. And he's going into town after town after town and only finding mass graves in a shadow of its former self. And and this title is like reverberating through through the centuries, through history. There are no more Jews in Ukraine, and it's like almost unbelievable. How could it be that there's no Jews left in Ukraine? So uh, there has been a resurgence of Jewish life in recent decades. Uh, there, uh, so um, you know. Hopefully, everything will be okay. Also, I mean, this is this is like real. What's going on there? It's like you know, it's wild. It's a real war. This isn't this isn't a game of risk being played by two eccentric individuals on a New York City subway about how strong or weak the army in Ukraine is. This is a real war, and there are many Jews in danger there. But um, just uh, before I get. Again, before I get to Reb Chaim, I know I'm taking a little too long on this introduction, but um, the, Ukraine does have a very significant place in Jewish history. Jewish history in Ukraine is complicated. On one hand, it's very rich. It's been the home of Jews for centuries. A richness of Jewish life developed there. The stereotypical shtetl of Jewish folklore, which is immortalized by the likes of Mendel Moicher Sforim and Shalom Aleichem, flourished in Ukraine. Shalom Aleichem actually lived in Kiev for quite some time, um, as did many other famous uh, individuals in Jewish history. Golda Meir lived in Kiev also. Uh, the Malbim uh, is buried in Kiev. He was he was there at the end of his life. Um, and then across Ukraine, the Marsha is buried in Ostroy. We go to his uh, gravesite. He was the rabbi in Ostroy in western Ukraine. 
uh, for many years. Many of the other early rabbinical greats live there, and of course it's the cradle of the Hasidic movement. Mezhebizh is there, the whole Podolia area, the area of Volin, uh, you know, the Baal Shem Tev, the Magadim is rich, the Rabbi Yaakov Yesif, the Toldus, the Toldus Yaakov Yesif, or Rabbi Yitzchak of Bardichev, and of course Breslov, Rabbi Nachman, or Pinchas of Karetz, the Slavita printing press, which is the grandchildren of Rabbi Pinchas of Karetz, uh, Ravna, Lot, Lutsk, Anapol, there's so many more famous towns and shtetls and cities that each, just hearing the names of these places evokes such a, a memory, both good and bad, uh, throughout history. Today, you know, with the Ukraine's, um, you, the, you know, after uh, after uh, the, the fall of the Soviet Union, Ukraine is an independent uh, country. So Western Ukraine, which is formerly Galicia before the First World War, so you have Lvov, uh, which also was in Poland for a time, today is in Ukraine. Bells is even in Ukraine. Stri, where the Ktsai Sachoshin was the Rav. In southern Ukraine, you have places like Munkac, Vizhnitz, Chernovitz, Sadiger, Bayan, and so much more. You could go on and on and on. The richness of Jewish history there is something we could go on for hours. In north of Kiev is, of course, Chernobyl. Further to the east is Hadich, where the Alter Rebbe, Reb Shneir Zalman of Liadi, is buried. Niezhin, where his son, the Mittler Rebbe, is buried. And further east is Kremenchunk and Poltava, where, which were places of refuge, where Mir Yeshiva, Slabotki Yeshiva, and others found refuge during World War One, and I discussed it on uh, in the World War One uh, series, World War One and the Jews, I believe, on part two or three, and then of course further south, the the uh, the jewel on the Black Sea, Odessa, is the birthplace of much of modern Jewish culture. It was the headquarters of the Russian Zionist movement and the Yiddish writers, and there's so much more. The other hand, there's always the question of the relationship between Jews and Ukrainians, which is full of all kinds of stereotypes, and in between the stereotypes there's some truth and some some nuance that's needed about what the relationship has been with Jews and between Jews and Ukrainians throughout the centuries. There is, uh, you know, in the Jewish collective memory and the different incidents that happened. Ukraine is the site of the infamous Chimelnitsky massacres of Tachvetat or the Haidemik uh, massacres a century later in the 1760s. And then a little over a century later, you have what's known in, in at the time, the, it was called Sufot Banegev, the storms in the south. The Jewish press in the Russian Empire had to use code words to talk about the pogroms of 1881, including in Kiev itself. There was pogroms. It was all over Ukraine. Uh, those pogroms in Ukraine in the early 1880s set off a chain of events which uh, somewhat, to a certain extent, altered modern Jewish history in many ways, which is a topic for another time. Moving forward, many of the pogroms around the time of the first revolution in 1905 took place in Ukraine. The Mendel Bayless trial was in Kiev, which was a blood libel. Um, many of the massacres and pogroms and the bloodshed and Jewish death and destruction of the First World War during the Russian Revolution, the Civil War, uh, the early uh, early parts, the early uh, uh, risings of Ukrainian nationalism, a lot of that took place uh, in Ukraine. Then during the Sovietization of Ukraine, so there was the Holdomor, which was the, the today's considered by many a genocide. It was, you know, nothing specifically about the Jews, but any residents of Ukraine suffered a tremendous uh, famine. Is already when they're behind the Iron Curtain in the Soviet Union. It's forced collectivization. There's the war on the Kulaks, the big landowners, and then the Holocaust. Um, and then there's the very tragic story of Ukrainian collaboration during the Holocaust. 
including shootings at the Babi Yar and many, many, many thousands of other mass graves throughout uh, Ukraine, uh, where there was a strong Ukrainian collaboration with the Nazi uh, occupation, which is a tragic story as well. There's also Ukrainian guards in many of the camps, including Auschwitz and other places the Nazis uh, employed uh, uh, Ukrainian guards. So it's a very troubling history. And on the other hand, the Jews lived there for 800 years, 1,000 years, and and uh, for most of that time, they got along on a daily life with their neighbors and uh and therefore, there's a, you know it's a complicated it's a complicated story and needs a lot of nuance and uh, and it's for another time because we're here really to talk about Ruchayim Brisker which I'll eventually get to. Um, like I said, uh, Jewish life in the post-war Soviet Union. There's a renewal of Jewish life. In fact, I was once with a group in Odessa and we went into a shul. It was an old shul, and I usually when I get into an old shul with the group, I you know get up in the front and I start telling the story. I, I guide. I, I, I tell the history of the shul. And I started to do that, and someone came over to me and said, can I please uh, either do it quietly or maybe outside the shul because there's a kailal here and people are learning Tyra, and you're, it's disturbing. My guiding is disturbing. And I said to the group, this is the happiest moment in my guiding career. I've never been stopped in an old shul, which I believed was uh, history, and only history, and nothing in the present, and was told instead that there's something going on here in the present. There's Jewish life active in the present. And uh, and therefore, I'm very happy to go out of the shul and guide and tell you about the history outside, because here in this shul in Odessa, there's actually active Jewish life, and they're writing the next chapter in Jewish history as well. So um, the trips to Ukraine in recent years has been very exciting to Mezhubish, to Uman. Uh, hopefully, we'll get back to there soon, as soon as things uh, calm down. Um so uh, hopefully we'll have a peaceful solution. We'll be able to get back to the Baal Shem Tov HaKadosh. In fact, I, I just heard recently an excellent episode on the Sfarim Chatter podcast, where the very fantastic host interviews Professor Yochanan Petrovsky-Stern about Ukraine, a little bit about its history, but mostly about what's going on there today. It's fascinating. I really enjoyed it, and uh, you might want to enjoy it as well. Now let's finally get to Reb Chaim Soloveitchik. I know everyone's sitting at the edge of their seats and saying, what's this guy talking about Ukraine for so long? Isn't the topic today about Reb Chaim Brisker? So let's talk about him a little bit. He's someone who uh, I spoke about uh, in the old, 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 old episode of Jewish History Soundbites, um, way back, it was almost the beginning, about almost two years ago, or maybe more than two years ago, I don't even remember, um, and I covered certain aspects of Reb Chaim Brisker's life then, and uh, you can check that out, I'll try to post the link to that as well, so that, uh, you know, this, you know, I have to have, you know, have some new stuff on him this time, there's so much on this great and historical and very popular and beloved figure. Um, he he was the Rosh Hashiva of the Velazhin Yeshiva before it closed down in 1892. He was the rabbi of the Jewish community in Brisk, which was a large and very prestigious Jewish community. It wasn't a small little shtetl. It was a very large city for many years. Uh, he was the leader of, he was one of the leaders of Russian Jewry, one of the rabbinical leaders of Russian Jewry when it was still under the czars, that area. And he was primarily renowned for trailblazing a new style of Talmudic study, a new Derech Halimud, which is utilized until this very day worldwide, which I'm not going to try to explain because I don't have that capability and I don't know how to, but there are many works written out there and many lectures out there trying to explain this revolution that uh, Reb Chaim Brisker made in the 
a way of learning uh, in, in that has been adopted and implemented in, uh, in, uh, in Jewish education worldwide. So he, of course, is the son of the Beis Halevi, or Beis of Doiv Soloveitchik. He's the father uh, of, of uh, Ramesha Soloveitchik and the Briskarov, or Velvola Soloveitchik. He was also known as the great Balchesed, a very fatherly and kind person with a heart wide open for all the broken and downtrodden in the Jewish people. There are so many facets of this brilliant and fascinating individual. And in fact, um, one of the reasons I'm doing it now is because I just came back this morning from a visit, another visit, many, many visits to Reb Chaim Brisker's gravesite in Warsaw with a group. Um, and this is actually being recorded live from my hotel room in Warsaw. I'm stealing away a little time uh, to be able to share another episode with the wonderful community of Jewish History Soundbites. So it's fresh. Just was talking about Reb Chaim next to his kever, and uh, and uh, and uh, and we'll talk a little bit about his life. So Reb Chaim, uh, he he lived in Valazhin and and in in uh, in Brisk and other places too. But he had a strong relationship with uh, Warsaw. Uh, he visited many times. Of course, Warsaw is the capital. It was a major city. Um, his 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 wife's grandfather, the Nitziv from Naftali Tzvi Yehuda Berlin, was buried there as well. The Nitziv, and that's where he's buried next to, in the same aisle, in the same place, which I'll get to also how that came to be. But uh, the Nitziv, who, uh, following the closure of the Valazhin Yeshiva, which I discussed in the last episode of the Valazhin series, the the series about uh, Valazhin Yeshiva, so the Nitziv. Um, was raising money to cover the debts of the yeshiva. He had a dream of eventually retiring to the land of Israel, and he never really recovered from this uh, tragic closing of the yeshiva, so he um, fell ill, and he was in Warsaw, both fundraising to cover the debts and also seeking out medical treatment when he passed away, so the Nitziv was buried in the Warsaw Jewish Cemetery, um, and uh, and later on Reb Chaim Brisker was buried next to him. Uh, Reb Chaim was in Otvatsk at the end of World War One. And he uh, passed away at that time. Uh, uh, so he, he uh, Atvach is, is, is of course a suburb of Warsaw. So they brought him from that suburb to be buried in the Warsaw Jewish Cemetery, where his wife's grandfather and the two of them together had been the Russia Yeshiva in Valazhin during its heyday. So that's where he's buried and not in, in, in Brisk or Valazhin or anywhere else. Um, Reb Chaim Brisker had more connections to Warsaw. His son in law, Reb Hirsch Glickson, was was from Warsaw. He was he was a Ger Chassid. Reb Chaim Brisker, the ultimate Litvak, so to speak, was a a Ger. So his son-in-law was a Ger Chassid. His only daughter married this uh, this Ger Chassid who had met Reb Chaim when he was on one of his visits to Warsaw together with another Warsaw superstar rabbi, Reb Nassim Spiegelglass, also a Ger Chassid, and uh, Reb Chaim took. Uh, the former, Birch Glickson, as a son-in-law, who eventually, he was the head of the very prestigious Warsaw Yeshiva, the Yeshiva Teres Chaim. Um, and that was not Reb Chaim's only child in Warsaw. He had another uh, child living in Warsaw for a period of time, Reb Moshe Salovechik, who was uh, the head of the Tach Kamoini Rabbinical Seminary. In fact, uh, the main reason Reb Moshe Salovechik left the Tach Kamoini Rabbinical Seminary was his dispute in how the seminary should be run with the great historian who 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 ran ran the seminary together with him, Mayor Balaban, and Mayor Balaban 
uh, who dies in the Warsaw Ghetto during the Holocaust, is buried in the Warsaw Jewish Cemetery as well. On the other opposite side of the cemetery of Reb Chaim Brisker, but it's interesting. Uh, another, you know, war, everyone's in Warsaw. Uh, but either way, Ramesha Soloveitchik eventually leaves his position at Tachkamani and moves uh, to New York to take up a position in, in YU. Um, on on uh, Reb Chaim's grave, I think I mentioned this uh, a couple of years ago when I did the original episode on Reb Chaim, it says the appellation Rav HaChesed, and only afterwards does it say Sar HaTayra. And the collective memory of the Jewish people has would have remembered him first as the Sar HaTayra and then the Rav HaChesed, the great uh, bestower of kindness. Uh, but his essence was Chesed, and he himself wanted it to be inscribed on his tombstone as such. And I recently just understood what it means Rav HaChesed at an entirely new level. I was reading a book just a couple of weeks ago. This is, you know, fresh... Um, it's not a new book. I just happened to bump into this book recently uh, by Professor Mati Zalkin. Excellent book. It was, it's about the rabbinate in the Pale of Settlement. Fascinating book. Really, uh, um, kind of a hard story to read about the the challenges of of the rabbinate in the in the Russian Pale of Settlement during the nineteenth uh, century and early twentieth century. But a really, really a fascinating study. And you know, Zalkin doesn't need. Uh, my uh, uh, approval. It's, he, he writes excellent. But um, one of the subjects that he keeps on returning to in the book is the dire financial situation of the rabbis, and especially of retired rabbis, or or once a rabbi is deceased, uh, of their widow and orphan. There was no uh, safety net, there was no financial arrangement for retired rabbis or more likely for for widows and orphans of rabbis, the community simply could not uh, financially support the widows and orphans or retired rabbis, and they were destitute. Many of them, you know, in talking about at that time, destitute meant starvation, and um, and there was no no way out. Sometimes uh, he points uh, to to stories where there were communities who delayed hiring a new rabbi for years and years and years because they had this. Uh, either moral or contractual obligation to support the widow and orphan of the previous rabbi, and they simply could not hire, they could not afford to pay an additional salary. So what would be the solution to this uh, problem? Reb Chaim Brisker is the one who comes up with a solution, although it was not implemented, no one listened to him, uh, which also happens. But uh, he came up with this brilliant idea of rabbinical pension plans. You're talking about in the early 1900s, in the in, 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 the, in the Russian pale, and Reb Chaim Brisker, the great Lamdin, the great Baal Chesed, the, someone who you think is removed from the world of finance and, 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 and modern and progressive financial instruments and arrangements, he's the one who comes up with the idea that there should be rabbinical pension, pl- pension plans where a percentage of their salary should be put away into a fund, and 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 this would be used as a, a fund to support the widows and orphans of the rabbi or retired rabbis and stuff like that. Uh, a fascinating idea, and you know, takes the genius of Reb Chaim and the heart of Reb Chaim um, and the understanding, the keen understanding of of life around him. He was someone who did not live in an ivory tower. He was actually very, very much with the world and and who understood uh, 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 the ways of the world, and he's the one who his brain, brainstorms the idea of rabbinical pension plans. Uh, like I said, it was a voice in the desert, no one listened, it was never implemented, but at least he expressed it. Um, Reb Chaim Brisker is a beloved figure in yeshiva society, there's so many stories about his Torah scholarship, his boundless 
kindness and his courageous leadership in collaboration with other world Torah leaders, such as Reb Chaim Oizer-Grudzinski, the Rebbe the Rashab of Chabad Lubavitch, Rebbe Chaim Meizel of Lodz, and many others. Um, uh, Rev, uh, you know, had his... Reb Chaim Brisker's grandson used to, Rav Salvechik in YU, used to love telling his students, sharing with them stories about his grandfather. In in many ways and in many segments of Jewish society, there's there's this love of relating stories about Reb Chaim Brisker. And for instance, the making of a gadol, Reb Nassim Kamenetsky, there's loads of interesting stories about Reb Chaim Brisker. I remember his nephew, Reb Nassim's nephew, Reb David Kamenetsky, told me that when Rev. Beryl Soloveitchik um, passed away in Yerushalayim in 1981, the Briskorov's uh, oldest son. So Rev. David Kamenetsky's grandfather, Rev. Yankov Kamenetsky, visited Israel shortly afterwards, and he went to visit the family, visit the Soloveitchik family, and he was accompanied by his son, Rev. Nassin. Um, and uh, Rev. Yankov Kamenetsky had met Rev. Chaim Brisker as a young student when he when he was in Slabatka. So he starts telling the family stories that he remembered about Reb Chaim, their illustrious forebear, their illustrious ancestor. And the family, who had never met their illustrious ancestor, um, was very excited. And Reb Yaakov Kamenetsky is even mimicking Reb Chaim's distinctive voice um, and the way he uniquely rolled his R's, which I can't do because I never heard Reb Chaim speak, but apparently this was something Reb Yaakov did and he mimicked Reb Chaim. And the family, the Soloveitchik family is going wild because they're hearing about Reb Chaim, they're getting an authentic imitation of his voice. This is incredible for them. And after about an hour, Reb Nassim Kamenetsky is coaxing his father to leave because he had another appointment and the Soloveitchiks are really mad. They were getting upset. Reb Nassim is ruining their entertainment here. Here they have Reb Yaakov, this great... Uh, a great uh, Torah leader is is sitting there uh, imitating Reb Chaim for them, and his son is trying to take him away. Uh, but just a little bit about the uh, background of Reb Chaim also. Um, he's, of course, born to Reb Yosef Doiv Halevi Soloveitchik, the Beis Halevi, from the Beis Halevi's second marriage. The first marriage of the Beis Halevi ended in divorce. The second marriage of the Beis Halevi was to a woman named Cyril from a Hasidic family, Lechavich Hasidim. Um, so Reb Chaim uh, and most of his siblings are born to this marriage. Uh, uh, so his mother, Reb Chaim's mother, is from a Hasidic family, which is also interesting to note. Um, actually, following this Cyril, following this uh, second marriage, following her passing, the Basil Levi married a third time and had children for that marriage as well. Either way, um, his Reb Chaim's youth is is in Valazhin. That's where he was born. Uh, before his father left Valazhin, which I discussed also in the Valazhin series, and then later Reb Chaim grows up in Slutsk, where his father, the Levi, was rabbi, before uh, before he goes back to, he returns to Valazhin to study. He eventually married, in back into the Valazhin family, he marries uh, Lifsha, the daughter of Reb Rafal Shapiro, who was at that time a Rav, uh, the, the Rush, one of the Russia yeshiva in Valazhin, um, before he left and became a rabbi in, in, a, in a town, which I forgot to put in my notes. I don't remember the name. Anyway, so um, at that time he was still in Valazhin. Rafael Shapiro was, of course, the son-in-law of the Nitziv, uh, who was the Rosh Hashiva now, uh, who was the Rosh Hashiva in Valazhin, and, and he, of course, becomes Reb Chaim Brisker's grandfather now through marriage. So he's in Valazhin. At the age of 27, he, around the year 1880, he's appointed as the assistant Rosh Hashiva in Valazhin to the Nitziv. And he begins to deliver 
regular Talmudic discourses. He was delivering shiurim three times a week. And these shiurim were very popular. This is uh, uh, his new derech halimud, his new style of teaching with everyone was going wild over. Um, and uh, coupled with his fatherly attitude towards his students, um, made him a very beloved figure in the yeshiva. Between his shiurim and the way he interacted with the students who loved him, he became very beloved. Um, he lived in the yeshiva building. He had an apartment in the yeshiva building downstairs. When we go to visit Velazhin, we actually see the place where his apartment was. Um, and he becomes very, very popular. His career in Velazhin was relatively short, about 12 years, from 1880 approximately until the Velazhin yeshiva was closed in 1892. And I discussed the closing uh, this fascinating saga in the last installment of the Jewish History Soundbites series on the Velazhin yeshiva. But it's a relatively short career, uh, and during that, that time, he did teach hundreds of students uh, during his Velazhin tenure, many of whom subsequently emerged as Torah teachers a generation later. So he goes and joins his father in Brisk, and very shortly afterwards, just a few months later, his father, the Beis Halevi, passes away, and Reb Chaim is appointed his successor as rabbi of the town. So he now has three roles. He's a teacher of Torah, of his new method, which... He kind of left that role in Valajan, but he had sporadic, or rather, I guess better said, informal uh, frameworks in Brisk where he did teach, continue to teach students. It was never an official yeshiva in Brisk uh, that Reb Chaim maintained, but there were, you know, different students that came to study by him, uh, at, you know, even while he was the rabbi there. He's, of course, the rabbi and leader of the Brisk community, which he saw as sort of a, a his leadership function there was, was a chesed function, essentially, to look after the welfare of the less fortunate of society. And then he had this uh, this uh, leadership role in, in, in the world stage, in, in the Russian rabbinical uh, world. Uh, um, uh, one of the more striking stories of his chesed, which is, uh, which is quite well known, was the that it was, at the time, it was very famous and brisk, that anyone, anytime a... a a parent or parents felt that they would not be able to raise a child in the proper healthy environment, uh, they would leave their children, essentially abandoning them, on the doorstep of the rabbi, of Reb Chaim. And he would raise them. He would raise them personally sometimes. He would pay for foster care. He would pay for nurses. He would pay for adoption. He would seek out their welfare later on, making sure they're receiving a proper education in a loving home environment. He would even marry them off and pay for their marriages. Unbelievable details of all these uh, uh, stories of how uh, he would raise these children who, who were orphans, abandoned orphans. And I remember reading about this uh, one of the first times I read it, and I did a double take because... You know, the story is essentially about Reb Chaim, but it gives a bit of a window into the context of Reb Chaim's times and how he met a specific social challenge, which we would often overlook about this society of the uh, late 1800s, early 1900s in, uh, in traditional Jewish society of Brisk and, and, and Russia in general. Uh, apparently, if there's so many stories about it, apparently it means that there were many instances of child abandonment in this holy community of Brisk and its vicinity, and we can therefore extrapolate from that there are probably the same uh, the same occurrences going on in other areas uh, in Eastern Europe. Um, and we wonder what other rabbis' rea- reactions were to this phenomenon of children being born to single mothers out of wedlock. 
uh, or children being born into dysfunctional homes, or children, children being born into homes of extreme poverty or mental illness, of all types of parents and scenarios, or orphans that at birth where they didn't even have parents, or parents who didn't feel capable of raising their children for whatever the reason were, was, excuse me, uh, so they would leave their children at the doorstep of Reb Chaim Brisker. And it says much about Jewish society in the pale of settlement at that time and how many social issues there were. Um, and it's a bit of a window into the leadership initiative of Reb Chaim Brisker and his creative way of dealing with it, that he would simply you know, not be judgmental about the parent situation, but rather anonymously, you know, have them anonymously leave them there. And he took the responsibility, which he didn't get paid for, by the way, uh, of dealing with it and, and paying for their upbringing and getting them nurses and, and foster care and all that. Um, so that's, you know, it's a fascinating uh, uh, story in its own right. Now, on his uh, leadership's, uh, leadership side, Sir Chaim Brisker had a close relationship with um, one of the great leaders of, of his time, Reb Chaim Eizer Grudzinski, who was in Velazhin during the time that Reb Chaim Brisker was there. But Reb Chaim Eizer was already great in his own right, never really considered himself a student of Reb Chaim Brisker. I've seen some books uh, call Reb Chaim Eizer a student of his. Um, um, he, don't think that Reb Chaim Eizer himself saw it that way. Um, and and it's and also if you match up the years and everything, it also uh, they consider themselves more contemporaries than a, uh, a teacher-student relationship. And it's very interesting that they both shared a platform at the 1910 rabbinical conference, although they differed in views at that conference, which I think I've touched on uh, in other episodes. Uh, they also uh, in, in another another area where they. Uh, shared a leadership role was in the founding of the Agudas Yisrael, both in the 1909 Bad Hamburg conference in Germany and the, later on at the 1912 Katowice conference. Um, and then later there's this whole issue of are they going to retain the support of Reb Chaim Brisker in the founding of the Agudas Yisrael or not? And that becomes a very contentious issue. And there's letters, a flurry of correspondence uh, from Reb Chaim and and others. I, I, um, uh, you know, David Kamenetsky, who's researched Reb Chaim Eizer, and he, uh, in the book, he has about it, and he also shared with me, also when I spoke to him about it a couple of times, uh, about, uh, you know, this issue that, that Reb Chaim Eizer was dealing with, that he wasn't sure if they would retain Reb Chaim, Reb Chaim Brisker's support. And this became a major thing, because Reb Chaim Brisker was such a name in le- Jewish leadership, and one of the most important rabbis around, that if they wouldn't have his support, it would, you know, it would be very shaky, and it would be problematic. And he felt that they were losing his support. Reb Chaim Brisker made 18 conditions. He wrote a document, which, which is an elusive document because it's never been actually located, and no one's sure what those 18 conditions were. But it's ref- it's referenced in many of these letters of Reb Chaim Eizer and how these conditions are impossible to meet. And those conditions were set out by Reb Chaim Brisker for his uh, in the, in the contingent uh, upon him joining the initiative of founding the Agudas Yisrael. Um, and since those conditions were not met, uh, eventually Reb Chaim Brisker uh, withdrew his support of the nascent, uh, nascent organization. Um, and he did not ultimately support it, uh, although he really passed away in 1918 when before, you know, really, really got off the ground. Uh, so we'll never know how much of an opposition he would have had to that movement. Uh, either way, um, but he, uh, he was involved in the initial stages 
um, and uh, and and uh, and you see that in in the in the correspondence. Um, Reb Chaim had an outsized influence in shaping the modern yeshiva world, the methodology of Torah study. A sampling of his students and institutions directly impacted by his methodology includes the pre-war yeshivas of Slabatka and Mir and Baranovich and other yeshivas, uh, Rebarach Berlebovich, Rebbesazal Meltzer, Rebbechon Wasserman, all and many, many others were students of his who were big uh, builders of Torah afterwards. And of course you have in the United States, Rav Salvechik's, uh, who was his grandson, who who, you know, a student primarily of his father, Ramesh Salvechik, but even has a young child study with his grandfather, Reb Chaim, and how he brings that to Yeshiva University, and how that, in, an, into, in a whole new vistas and new horizons uh, to bring the impact of Reb Chaim, of course, the brisk Yeshiva in Israel and its influence in both Israel and the United States in recent decades, and there's many, many, many additional examples. What's incredible is, to me, is that it was an oral legacy, for the, for the most part, from a relatively short career in Valazhin, sporadic students in Brisk without any formal yeshiva there, and a very limited textual legacy in the form of his official Sefer, Chidush Rabbeinu Chaim Halevi, and then the so-called stencils. Um, and with that, this small textual legacy, an oral legacy of his students from that you know short career in Valazhin and Brisk, he was able to create this everlasting influence, like this, it's, it's an immeasurable influence. It's really, really an amazing story in my eyes. Another interesting, uh, again, the human point of it is that uh, Reb Chaim, uh, his family and his descendants, it seems like this large, princely, aristocratic family, which still has a large impact on the Torah world. But it is worth noting that a large portion of the family, perhaps a majority of his family, were killed in the Holocaust. His oldest son, Rabbi Yisrael Gershon Soloveitchik, and almost his entire family were murdered in Brisk. There was one surviving son who was in Switzerland before the war, Rabbi Moshe Soloveitchik. And then Rabbi Chaim's daughter, Sarah Rasha, with her husband, Rabbi Hirsch Glickson, who I mentioned earlier, their children and grandchildren, including his son-in-law, Rabbi Rom Meir Finkel, the son of Rabbi Yidel Finkel of the Mir, were all killed in Warsaw during the Holocaust. Even Rabitzik Zev Soloveitchik, the Briskarov, who was able to get out with most of his children, but his wife and three of his children were still in Brisk, and they got killed as well. So it's very tragic. Uh, but those of the Soloveitchik family who did survive continued the legacy of their illustrious forebear, Reb Chaim Brisker. So this is Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at yehuda.yehudageber.com for questions, comments, sources, tours, trips, sponsorships, and lectures. You can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on Podbean or your favorite podcast platform, and I hope you enjoyed.